Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Okay, so it's my pleasure to welcome to the show today, Christopher Sharp. How are you doing today, sir? Hi, mate. I'm doing really, really well, thank you. Um, yeah, just um, never like January, to be honest, but we're hoping to um, to get some good stories out in the next few weeks and stuff to brighten things up for everyone, hopefully. Yeah, kick off the year as we mean to go on, eh? Absolutely. So um, I know you as someone who pops up on my timeline on UFO Twitter quite often, and uh, most importantly, especially recently, the the founder of the excellent Liberation Times website. Uh, but for um, any listeners who aren't aware, I was thinking if you may be able to be kind enough just to give a little background on yourself and perhaps, you know, what got you interested in the UFO topic, if that's all right. Yes, of course. Um, so when I was younger, I was always into it, like, if I miss school or something like that, well, sometimes I try to miss school so I could watch Discovery Channel, History Channel, watch all the documentaries. Um, uh, so, yeah, I was in it from, like, a long, young age. Um, but as I grew up, I kind of grew out of it. Um, uh, and then I got into, like, the Jeremy Corbell stuff uh, <laughs> and Joe Rogan interviews and everything and what was going on with Tom DeLonge and To The Stars Academy. Um in terms of my background, I work in um, public relations and public affairs. Um, so I've like, worked for kind of like the big um, comms agencies in London. Um, but when COVID-19 hit, um, everything just like went to pot. Um, my wife working in the NHS, she was one of the first to catch COVID, I guess. Um, I caught COVID as well. So I think I remember like being in my bed, unable to breathe in April, um, 2020. Um, and then I heard a news item about the Pentagon, um, basically releasing those videos and saying that they're real, um, they're unidentified and, kind of like in that horrible moment that gave me hope um thinking actually maybe maybe things aren't so bad we're on the precipice perhaps of meeting another civilization discovering new technologies 
perhaps even defeating terrible diseases as well. So, I mean, yeah, so that, that, gave, that gave me hope, I guess. So my renewed interest kind of comes from COVID. Yeah, I think there's a whole sort of wave of, of people who've, who've kind of become reinvigorated with the topic over the last few years. And I was the same as yourself. I've talked about it on my podcast quite a lot. Joe Rogan was kind of a big part of my sort of way in with him being such a big podcast. I think he really got a lot of people interested around that time. And it's quite a coincidence, isn't it, that, that COVID hit and allowed people to have that bit of extra time to develop certain things. And in the UFO community, there's been so many you know, things kind of spring forth like podcasts and people have wrote books and things. And it's weird, isn't it? How that all, that all came to happen. But I was going to ask you, um, if I'm not mistaken, I seem to remember you mentioned on a podcast at one point that you worked in, in Westminster. Was that actually like in, within politics or was that just in sort of that area? Uh, so when you work in, um, public relations and public affairs, um, uh, well, especially on the public affairs side, you'll have to liaise with or engage, I suppose, with politicians. Um, so whether that be on a local level with local councillors, leaders of councils and planning committees and stuff to get planning applications through. Um, and then on a national level as well with um, kind of like MPs and everything. So um, uh, we have to do some work around that. Yeah, so let's say we've got a client um Let's say they've got an advocacy campaign um, to change like housing policy um, so that it helps people um, in social housing, for example. Um, and, you know, a lot of those people live in poverty, obviously, and um, uh, they, they need as much help as, as we can provide them in terms of skills and stuff. Um, so let's say, for example, we had a, like, a training scheme for like people living in social housing um, to train them in kind of like new careers and stuff like that. So we would go to, um, we'd find advocates in parliament and we'd try to get like legislation um, on the table um, to kind of like provide more money to housing associations, whatever, so that we can kind of <laughs> get such schemes off the ground and lend our support. So yeah, that, yeah, sorry, it's quite nuanced, but that, that's the kind of thing that you have to do sometimes. You have to get support of politicians and stuff for um, advocacy campaigns in terms of um, national legislation. Um, I think obviously like advocacy campaigns and stuff like that um, in terms of kind of engaging like lobbying let's say lobbying is a bad term um and there's like a lot of negative association around it but i mean from my experience it was only like really positive stuff that we worked on with politicians mm. um so yeah I, that, that's kind of my experience i've worked with kind of mps before and stuff so yeah quite familiar with how it works <laughs> yeah i was just wondering if like your previous roles that you'd had of doing things like that had, had sort of informed your knowledge of political structures and things because you, you seem to be quite knowledgeable about that side of things in your writing and, and and the way that you talk about things on Twitter so is that kind of giving you a good grounding in understanding how political processes mm -hmm. and things work? Yeah I think so yeah um, in terms of like the UK especially and, uh, and kind of like how it works and how kind of like information can be manipulated, distorted. Um, it all, depend, all depends how you interpret things. And <laughs> it's, it's quite sticky. Like the, you know, like the, the, the conservative government could, um, could say we've invested XX amount of 
numbering like um housing and stuff like that but it could be recycling lots of that figure Uh, (laughs) or some of that figure may not have anything to do with housing at all but maybe under a housing bill just like stuff like that really so but yeah i've had to be educated on the u.s side i've had to like read up and um yeah certain people like in the u.s like involved with washington have really really helped me kind of like understand what's going on in terms of um the committee so you've got like your house committees and then you have your um, Senate committees as well, um, and it's kind of like who's got the power in terms of the Senate versus the House. And you know, one of the things I learned, for instance, is that the appropriations committees in the House of Representatives that has all the pa- that has most of the power um, as compared to the Senate. That's one of the things. What well, I've been told, but um, I think yeah, that is correct. Yeah, so yeah, and it's kind of like really important as well that the appropriations committees are involved with the UAP office stuff really important yeah it's it's a uh, bizarre isn't it how i mean you you're probably already you know interested in and in knowledgeable on all of that from from your background and things but for myself being sort of i guess relatively new to the the uap ufo topic it sort of drags you in unexpected directions you know and i've, I've ended up yeah. finding myself researching how the u.s political processes work and spending hours you know sort of checking out all these different departments i had no idea about before and and things like that so it definitely helps with you know liberation times being a really good resource of all the articles that i've read on there it really helps to kind of get your head around it for especially being from the uk and not having grown up you know sort of keeping tabs on the way it works with you know us politics so liberation times as we mentioned uh, has, has really quite rapidly grown hasn't it over the last uh, few months and the, the, the recent while and uh, as i say it's a really good source of uh, nuanced reporting on on the ufo uap topic I was wondering how how have you gone about finding your writers, your contributors? Do you actually reach out to people, or do people just kind of gravitate towards the platform? Um, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure if I'm 100 percent saying this. My memory's not the greatest, but I'd have to say, especially for experience now, I've got a lot of people coming to me um, asking to contribute. Um, so, and I'm a believer as well. I mean, a lot of people like running. Um, like publications may say they may be very, very, um, what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? Dismissive of some people, let's say, that don't have a kind of um, background in kind of like writing and um, or they think they're the wrong fit and stuff like that. So they can be quite discriminatory. Um, however, I feel that um, people like that, they're really, really missing a trick because I would believe that everyone has like a special skill that they can bring to the table. Um, so that's what I try to get from my writers because a lot of them have got some really, really unique stuff to, get, to bring to the table. Um, if there's something, obviously, which I don't think is necessary to have in an article, um, or perhaps, let's say, it's not to the, the writing style or standards that we have at Liberation Times, then that's fine, because I'm the editor. Um, so um, I, I, I'm open to all sorts of writers, um, unless they like have a controversial background, let's say, um, in terms of like upsetting people and everything, then I'm all open to, um, to most writers, because at the end of the day, I want people to focus on the topic and the content at hand, 
instead of the writer themselves. <laughs> I don't want people to like be reading a writer being like, oh, I don't like that person. Oh, but it's coming from them. I want them to like, really, really engage with the writing itself and the facts that we're putting forward and kind of the analysis that we're providing as well. That That's how I want to come at it as. But yeah, we, we get lots of, so it was a long winding answer there, but we got lots of, um, lots of like really, really um, cool contributors and even people like um, who don't want to necessarily write, but they're kind of like, oh, I think you should cover this topic. Um, you know, whether it's a scientist saying that, you know, I studied this case and um, investigated it back in the 70s or 80s, or, you know, an author of a recent book saying, did you want to write about my new book? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. And and I think um, something that we've talked a little bit about on, on Twitter, just, just uh, on replying to each other's tweets and things, is getting people from the community involved. Because, you know, I, I do this thing, Voices of the Community, where I try and get people who aren't necessarily sort of like celebrities and don't they don't have a background in, in you know, astrophysics or anything like that. It's kind of like myself uh, as well, you know. And I think we all have something to contribute because at the end of the day, the, the UFO you know uap issue potentially affects all of us doesn't it like there's there's nobody on this planet that it doesn't affect so it's really great to uh to get all different people involved so what are your uh, aims going forward do you have any big sort of goals in the pipeline for for 2022 <laughs> i'm just trying to make it as profitable as possible <laughs> to get by because um uh, obviously, that's like one portion of it because I've had to quit my job and everything, so I need to find a way to live. Um, yeah, absolutely. But but all but also just to kind of really, I think I think impact the conversation in terms of um, UAP, um, in terms of making it more nuanced, um, bringing new insights and understanding, um, breaking more stories as well, um, and also covering stories responsible. So we had a story last week about. Um, some new footage that emerged from a flight crew flying over to Georgia where they saw this like seemed to be like trot, like V-shaped UFO um, in the sky and it looked really, really compelling. And I thought that's like a really good story. But I wanted to get analysed before. I don't want like videos coming out of my um, kind of publication and people just thinking, wow, that's amazing. That's definitely a you know, an alien spacecraft or whatever. But no, I, I want to kind of like affect those by getting the analysis before I'm reporting and saying, yes, it is a UFO, it's unidentified, doesn't mean anything. Um, but you should be mindful of these things. Yes, it doesn't seem to be glare or reflections. However, we can't find it on the flight tracker for that date. So there's no corroborating information, stuff like that, really. So people, like, when they do see these kind of, like, videos, which are quite sensationalized, that they are actually kind of getting some grounding on it before it goes viral. And, and that's what I, I think, like, that's one of the biggest things that we need to kind of do in the UAP community because there's been such a history of kind of, like, false information, people you know, whether it be like people like Dodie or something like that, um, Richard Doty, sorry, um, kind of like lying to people and lead him in the false direction or kind of like people running with videos, which were obviously fake. I think we need to kind of like professionalize it a little bit more. Um, sometimes it's okay not to have the answer. I think you'll notice on Twitter, like so many people, like they want to have the answer, you know, and they'll say, oh, it's definitely this or it's definitely that. Sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know. But these are things that you need to take into account. 
Yeah, absolutely. There needs to be a, a checklist, doesn't there, really, of, of, of things to, to go through. And as you say, it's uh, it's easy to sort of jump to the conclusion that it's definitely some kind of extraterrestrial craft, which obviously we would all love it to be because it's much more exciting. But, you know, it's very difficult to actually say that with any certainty, isn't it, in, in a lot of cases. So it's, it's definitely good to be thorough in that way. Um, I, I'm kind of looking at a few at the moment that have been sent in by listeners and things like that, a few cases that I'm probably going to try and bring forward at some point. Perhaps I'll, I'll mention off air, actually, um, uh, later on. But as I say, it's all about that process before you start. You know, it's tempting to, you know, you get sent a video, just stick it up on Twitter and see what everyone thinks. It's going to be really exciting. But you, you have to do the uh, the due diligence, uh, due diligence, don't you, behind the scenes first. But I would, I'd love to see some, you know, a Chris Mellon article on Liberation Times or an Avi Loeb article on there or something. Maybe that's uh, something to aim for this year, It. Oh yeah, that that'd be really really cool. Um, you know, Chris, if you're listening, be more than happy. I mean, he has his own blog, I suppose. So, don't know if he'd be interested, but yeah, definitely, if he's interested, that will be um, that will be fantastic. And Avi Loeb, likewise, although he's working for the Hill at the moment, I don't know. I might need to um, to search some writers that you can possibly contribute. A Ross Coulthard piece would be welcome. <laughs> Ross, <laughs> no, joking. <laughs> but I, I do want to mention there is an article coming out. Um, tomorrow, it should be coming out tomorrow, and it's a joint um, exclusive that we did with the Sun newspaper um, on a, um, a new case involving a nuclear technician working at um, kind of a nuclear weapons base, so watch out for that tomorrow. <laughs> Oh, wow. Definitely going to be checking that out then. Uh, excellent. This episode is probably going to have already gone out, actually, by the time... Um, well, the, the article, sorry, would have already gone out by the time this episode actually goes out. So by the time people are listening to this, you'll be able to go to the website, Liberation Times, and, and check that out. Mm-hmm. So definitely, definitely worth doing. So one of the main things I wanted to have a chat to you about is uh, Susan Goff and uh, her current role in sort of what's going on at the moment. Um, I know you've you've written a little bit about it. And me being sort of relatively new to US politics, I thought it'd be uh, good to get your take on it in a bit more detail. So I'll I'll sort of keep it open-ended. What's your take on Susan Goff? Where did she come from? And how did she end up arriving at the point where she is today as, as the sort of DOD spokesperson who everything has to go through her, basically, doesn't it? So what are your thoughts there? It's rather odd. I mean, you've got a public affairs office in the, um, in the Pentagon. And, um, I mean, the John Greenwald, the Black Vault, he seems to have got kind of like um, information from... Um, Freedom of Information Act requests, and it kind of like shows that they're very, very proactive in kind of um, engaging in this prop um, in this subject and making sure they've got responses to questions and stuff like that, which does seem to, to suggest this is kind of like prioritised. It's not just like I roll UFOs. Oh, this is silly. No, it's like actually, if you look behind the scenes, they're properly engaged with it, and you can see that they are trying to kind of get on top of it in terms of um, being proactive, answering questions in a way that comes across that they're, I don't know. I, I suppose like when I worked in um, public affairs, public relations, um, let's say you've got like a controversial development that you're building houses. Um, what you'll do 
before you start the project is you'll build a Q&A list. So you think of every question that people opposing you might ask and you have to come up with an answer to that. So then whenever you get a response, whenever you get a, um, a question in from someone from the local community saying, I hate this development, a thousand homes, you're going to affect the highways, um, there's not enough social housing, stuff like that, then you have to be prepared with those answers. So then you can draft an email up in response um, and you've already agreed kind of like the broad stuff of what you're saying about, you know, affordable housing and stuff like that. And then you get it signed off by the client. So it kind of makes it easier to do. So the Pentagon has something like that in terms of um, UFOs, um, like a Q&A sheet. So um, it's something definitely that they're on top of. Um, from my understanding, like it's not just Susan Goff. She's a spokesperson and she'll help coordinate things. And obviously she'll provide her advice as a comms and psychological warfare <laughs> um, specialist, which she is. Um, and um, yeah, and then she'll get sign up from kind of like the higher ups, um, which I mean, I can only speculate with the higher ups are. It might be the office of secretary of, of, of defense um, or, or something like that. So um yeah, but my opinion is that she's obfuscated um, this topic a lot. She's very, very nebulous um, and evasive from the encounter that I had with her. I mean, I approached it a different way because I saw that a lot of people who were interacting with Susan Goff, they were just like kind of like, you know, just had like a normal kind of email just saying, oh, I want to ask this or I want to ask that. And that kind of like gave her um, an opportunity to kind of, um, let's say, be a little bit vague and evasive with her answer. So what I did, I tried a different approach. When I emailed her, I just said, look, this is about um, unidentified phenomena in context of the NDAA going out. These are my questions. So I had seven questions, which I put down. And then her response came back and she basically just only asked one question, answered one question. She didn't answer any of the others. So then I kind of like nailed her down. I was like, look, these are the questions I asked. I can see that you've answered this one. So I'll put this one next to here. And then I, I basically put for her, but so I'm assuming for these ones, it's no comment, no comment, no comment, no comment. Can you confirm whether that's the case? And then she came back basically to say, actually, um, those two questions are irrelevant because you're assuming that the UAP office is a separate entity to the um, AOIMSG or whatever it's called. So it was like, okay, so you're basically you're you're basically playing on semantics here when you know what the question is. So I just rephrased the question, saying, okay, <laughs> I'm referring to the group then, and one of those questions was whether it's going to remain within the um, Undersecretary of um, Defence for, intellig um, for Intelligence. I think it's Intelligence Defence. Sorry, I might have screwed up the title there. Um, but um, So that's the OUSD office, um, which is why Chris Mellon and Louis Elizondo were not very, very happy in the first place, because that's the same office that ATIP was in. And they basically didn't allow Louis Elizondo to report incidents up the line or up the chain of command, um, which is a really, really major problem because, you know, from my understanding, you were getting a situation with perhaps 
nuclear um, weapons being <laughs> being put at risk because of these objects and naval um, strike groups or carrier strike groups perhaps as well kind of like be being pestered by these triangle objects and having to evacuate their crews below the decks and that information is not getting to like big decision makers within the Pentagon or committees who are responsible for defense. So that's amazing. Like, you know, you could be like the person responsible for defense in America or the president or something like that. And you're not aware that these strange objects are basically kind of um, made your crews for your most powerful warships evacuate the deck because that, that's how serious it is. So that's why the USD matters. So if this new office, UAP office, is within situated within there, that's not good news. Um, so I, I specific, sorry, I'm going off here, but I specifically Go asked her about, her, her about that. And um, she just referred me to um, Avril Haines' memo when they announced the, the formation or the establishment of that group, which basically said it would be under that office. But it was kind of like weird. She couldn't say, yes, it will be under this office. Here's a link, by the way. Or she couldn't say, yes, it is currently within this office and it will continue to be in this office. So it was just really weird. She just gave me the link and that's it. So she's not saying anything in a way. So what I did in response to that, I said, can I assume that you're saying this, that it will remain in that office? And she just didn't respond to that. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, when I first read about the, obviously, the AOI MSG um, and everything, you know, it was it was announced at a very, uh, you know, sort of dodgy time where it seemed like that had been planned to sort of like, um, you know, do things a certain way. And when, when I first read the, the, the emails from Susan Goff, I thought it maybe was a little bit overblown, the concept of, you know, trying to wrestle control of this new UAP office, um, you know, and sort of merge it with the AOI MSG or anything like that. But that's partly because a lot of the emails, like you said, were very vague, weren't they? She was just giving kind of copy and paste answers to a lot of people. And I thought that um, I, I read an article on that I think you self-wrote on, on Liberation Times, and you'd managed to really kind of hone in on certain points. And it, it does seem, that she's basically suggesting there's no need for a new UAP office. We've already got the AOIMSG. We've got it covered. Don't worry about it. And things basically along those lines, isn't it? You know, or at least it seems that she's behind the scenes. There are efforts underway to to sort of try to to achieve that. You know, sort of give the AOIMSG the responsibilities that are being requested by the Gillibrand Amendment, so that you don't need to create a new office. We've got it covered. Which is it's a bit of that. Like Lou Elizondo said, the uh, giving the alcoholic the keys to the liquor cabinet, isn't it? The people who've been trying to keep these secrets all this time, they're trying to go, don't worry, we, we've got it sorted. We'll look into our own problems, where actually the whole point of the Gillibrand Amendment was to not have that, wasn't it? To have congressional oversight and all the very specific points. So, yeah, do you think it's safe to say at this point there's an active plan in place to kind of to wrestle away that control that, that's been tried to be established by the Gillibrand Amendment? Yeah, I think that um, there definitely is an effort underway, in my opinion, because from from the start, you know, um, AUS, AUSD has tried to kind of um, undermine UAP efforts ever since ATIP. Hmm. So 
it appears that they're doing the same again, um, especially in terms of, you know, what um, Susan Goff and whatnot have said about Louis Lizondo before, kind of like misguiding, misleading people as to what his actual responsibilities were. Um, so, yeah, it appears that there is an effort underway. And I think what they're going to try to do is try to interpret the NDAA text to their benefit. Um, although I don't think it's going to work, because if you look at the um, minutiae, for instance, within the text, it says that Lionel... So, so when the um, office is set up, you're going to have like different line organisations. So you might have a line organisation going out there investigating in the field new UAP cases. Then you may have like another line um, organisation um, which could kind of um, try to reverse and engineer and understand or capture craft, for instance. Um, and then maybe another one, which is basically just like studying... The, physiological impact. So you've got these line organisations um, within the UAP office and the text states that it can't be subordinate, um, that, that it can't be underneath um, any um, any of, um, office of Secretary of Defence. So it can't be under the office of Secretary of Defence, basically. Mm. So there is no way OUSD can kind of like be in control of these line organisations so to some extent, it cannot be totally in control of the UAP office. And then furthermore, it's an oversight office as well. Um, so it doesn't have contract abilities like an operational office would. Um, and you need to contract to make this a success. And that's stated in the NDAA as well. So... There's a, there's a few reasons why it can't possibly be within the OUSD um, wholly anyway, although there may be an oversight component that may be needed within the OUSD, if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. All these ac acronyms are a nightmare, aren't they? All these different things you have to remember. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it, it certainly certainly seems that, that way. I mean, it kind of seems to me as though the most logical compromise in the end would probably be that you have a, a, a central UAP office which is able to fulfil all those criteria that, you know, is required by the Gillibrand Amendment. And maybe the AOIMSG is, is just in charge of gathering information which pertains to, you know, restricted airspace and aerial objects, because it's very narrow, isn't it, the focus of what the AOIMSG is, is trying to achieve. Mm. And it, it makes sense to me. I mean, we probably won't shake out this, this way exactly, but if the AOIMSG was just in charge of gathering information and in restricted airspace and then reporting that to the new office, and then all, all, as well as that, you've also got all the other areas from the various different departments and offices which also report into this this main office that that pretty much seems like the only useful purpose for the AOIMSG at this point otherwise it's just gonna it's gonna get a little bit confusing you think there's a possibility it might shake out that way in the end uh, in my opinion I mean I predicted this in um, an article um, some weeks ago that um, there was a possibility that the new office would be within the um, AOIMSG um, <clears throat> And it will basically be part of it, but the uh, the actual kind of like um, initial mission of that group will kind of like disappear and be eclipsed by the requirements of NDAA. 
um, doing it that way would help them save face because if they because in my opinion um, the the AOI um, MSG is um, is useless um, compared with the kind of like more superior text within um, the NDAA. Um, so the only I mean the proper thing would be to actually scrap it and then start this new office under a new name, which they do have the um, which they can do. They you know they do have the authority. Um, the office of the Secretary of Defense does have that authority to create a new name for the for the new office. Um, but in my opinion, I think there might just be something whereby you keep the name, keep the name of the group so you can say face, but otherwise it will be nothing like the group, basically. It will be exactly um, to the NDAA language. Um, so that's my, that's my opinion. In terms of how I'd like it organised, I mean, it may play out the way that you're sta- saying. I'm not sure, but um, I know a lot of things are kind of like play at the moment there's a lot of different interests competing interests and stuff like that um negotiations so it's it's gonna it's it's a complex process so it's always Mm. difficult kind of like predicting complex processes um but i mean from my limited understanding i think a good way to do it basically have structure within um within the um office of um of 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 the director of national um intelligence avril haynes and the DOD, which is one of the options that it gives you within the NDAA language, so you have something sitting within those. However, the biggest component would be Space Force or something like that. Mm. Um, I would love it to be there. So I'd love it to be within Space Force just to simplify the process. And then obviously you have um, the ODNI as well, Um it's like a separate component, like working alongside that, which basically joins all the intelligence agencies working with Space Force on this topic. Um, and then that's the most simple way to go about it. And in my opinion as well, because it's a coordinated effort as well. So you're going to have NASA, you're going to have the FAA, um, Department of Energy working alongside it as well. So I think a good option would be for those separate agencies to have their own UAP office. So I could see it happening as well. I can see the Department of Energy having its own UAP office because it makes it it makes it easier to, because they have you know they they're going to have to coordinate now with the new UAP office. So it's easier if you have someone or some a group at those specific agencies to deal with saying, okay, can can you kind of like provide the latest UAP cases? Because it's going to have to be someone's job now at these other agencies to actually collect the cases and coordinate and be the point person or point group for um, the new UAP office. So I think I think some big stuff might happen with those other agents as well, and perhaps other nations as well, because you've got coordination with um, foreign partners and allies as well. And that can be interpreted differently too. You'll notice partners... You could enter an ad hoc partnership with China and um, Russia if you wanted to. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. It doesn't necessarily mean people who are you know countries who, who are actually already existing allies, does it? it? There could be some cooperation. There has been on on other things over the years as well. Various different things like the uh, the International Space Station and things like that. There is cooperation even with what you would class as adversarial nations. There isn't there. But just going back to Susan Goff, 
um, it's really difficult to decipher, isn't it? Because like you said, there's the, the whole kind of, um, how do you put it, the, the messaging. There's a very sort of uh, pre-planned messaging, isn't there, on how certain um, queries get answered so that the, the messaging is consistent. And I think that's kind of why there's been an effort for all of the queries on this topic to go through her, isn't there? Because it's, it avoids any kind of... Um, accidental somebody lets slip a little bit more information than another person or somebody mentions something in a slightly different way and gives a slightly different message everything goes through her now um but given the fact that she in the past has said statements which have turned out to be completely false it's really difficult to navigate that maze isn't it and find out like what's actually going on you've got one person who all queries have to go through on this on this topic and that that person has made factually completely incorrect statements in the past. You know, for example, Lou Elizondo's emails, uh, well, just Lou Elizondo's status in general, you know, they said one thing and then it turned out to be something else and, and various other bits and pieces. How do you think we navigate that maze? So I, I've never been in a situation before where I've had to write an article and state that an official spokesperson for a department has claimed that's a big difference between stated and claimed hmm. so that suggests that we can't trust what she says and i have you know i, I yeah and i have a good reason for saying that as well because she can't be trusted like you said and that's a pretty um it's a pretty bad place to be in um, especially in the, over in the US at the moment, even in the UK as well. I mean, like with the COVID situation, people are losing trust in politicians. Like over here, you know, we've got Boris Johnson breaking COVID rules and stuff back in May 2020. Um, mm. so people were like, okay, we can't even trust people giving us the rules anymore. And then over in the US, you kind of got a situation whereby you've just had a, a, a attempted coup or something like that on the 6th of January 2020 mm. um, and there's all sorts of conspiracy theories going around okay well how is this for a conspiracy theory you've got a psychological warfare specialist heading up the um, you know public affairs or well, not heading up but being part of and the front person for the public affairs office um, in the department of defense answering questions about UFOs I mean, that's like, and also she's got a track record of um, being misleading, being evasive and not telling the truth. I mean, that's a really, really bad position to be in, especially when President Biden's administration has put, you know, has made a major kind of like effort, at least in terms of rhetoric, to be a more transparent government because they do realise this is an issue. I mean, how on earth you can have this situation, I don't think is sustainable and I don't think that things are going to end well for Susan Goff, especially with the IG um, appraisal. Or, yeah, I think it's called an appraisal, isn't it, um, in place at the moment. So the IG are kind of like looking into things. So, yeah, I, I don't think it ends well with Susan Goff. I mean, yeah, I can't see any scenario where it does. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a strange one, isn't it? Having to go through one person who's got a proven track record of giving out, you know, either completely false information. I suppose it begs the question, like, you know, do you think that she actually knew that the things that she was saying were factually incorrect or do you think there was some kind of misunderstanding sometimes? It's, I mean, I'm not really that familiar with 
with her history, but do you, do you think there's an element of it where she might have just misunderstood or things like that? Or do you think it's a, an actual deliberate effort to put out information to mislead the public? Maybe, perhaps not even by her, but it might have been decided upon by you know people behind the scenes and she's just the face of it. What, what do you think? I think she is just the face of it, yeah. I think you know she needs to get sign up for a lot of the stuff that she's going to send back. Um, especially when you're doing these like crib sheets, like Q&A sheets, you'll need to sign up from that to make sure that um, you're not breaking any kind of like, you know, secrecy laws or anything like that and that you are providing accurate information. So there is an element of that. Um, whether she needs to get sign up for every email, perhaps not, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, she is working collaboratively, collaboratively with other people within the public affairs office and the wider um, OUSD and Office of Secretary of Defence as well. Um, I believe that is the case. Um, but I mean, if you look at the um, if you look at the history of Susan Goff and the Office of the, you know, um, Under Secretary of Defence, um, then it does look like there is a concerted effort to kind of like mislead. Um, and be evasive on this issue of UAP. Um, and it just seems like they're working, it just from the outset, it seems like they're working in tandem with each other just to kind of like um, disrupt our efforts as much as possible and kind of like getting some transparency out there. And I think Congress is aware of it as well. But I, I think, yeah, I think it is deliberate. But I think it, perhaps if you look closely at the language that she uses in terms of the Lou Elizondo exchange. She's playing games semantics, basically. Just everything she says is very, very careful. You notice that exchange that I was saying earlier about, you know, will this office, will, will this group remain within the, um, within the OUSD? She didn't say yes or no, but she just sent me in the direction of the memo sent by Avril Haynes in November when the group was established. And then I basically said, okay, you're not answering my question directly. Can I just assume that you're saying this question mark? She never responded to me um, in terms of that, but she hasn't said directly or not one way or the other. It, that's a very, very clever trick to play in terms of comms. I would say that, but you're not being transparent. And let's say if you're working anywhere else, but the Department of Defense, you wouldn't get away with that. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, something that I go on about all the time is that, like, it seems absolutely obvious to me that there's, like, massive amounts of public interest in this. I was listening to something um, earlier on that I was when I was out driving. Um, I think it was Ross, Ross Coltart was talking on a podcast about um, the documentary that he did about UFOs has got, like, um, way more views on, on the Seven News uh, YouTube channel than any of the other shows that they've done over the last couple of years. It's pretty much undeniable, I think, by this point that, you know, there's a massive amount of public interest in this. And, you know, really, governments are there to act out the will of the people, aren't they? And the will of the people is to know more about what's going on with this thing. And it's uh, it's almost as though these the secret keepers, the, the time is up, you know? It feels a bit like the public have cottoned on now and the, there's actual serious efforts to push them to be more transparent on this issue but it's whether or not we'll actually uh, see any results from it this year how, how hopeful are you that we'll uh, actually get somewhere with that in the near future 
I'm extremely hopeful. I'm absolutely, positively, extremely uh, hopeful that we're going to get somewhere on this. Um, I mean, if you look at the macro situation, it's going to come out because, okay, let's say worst case scenario, um, Susan Goff and um, all those against kind of like the transparency effort get their way um, and they manage to kind of like keep efforts at bay. Okay, that's fine. So Congress will just review the situation. It will make the um, the relevant decisions to make sure that those barriers are removed and the effort will go on. So that's fine. Um, then also as well, you've got Avi Loeb um, and his Galileo project. All it takes is one tip off, one tip off from someone in the know. Okay, go here. Um, you might want to set up your instruments this particular way. Um, yeah, good luck. And then, you know, in two or three days, um, over American skies, Avi Loeb and his team will discover that there are exotic craft flying with absolute extraordinary ability. Um, we do not know if this is Russian or Chinese technology or whether it is non-human intelligence. However, that announcement will come out. And how do you think, how, how do you think the DOD is going to feel about that? I mean, you're getting the news that you've got exotic craft, which might be Russian, Chinese, flying over American skies. The first to discover that is the Galileo project. You're not getting that information from the Defense Department. What do you think? The if you're if you're a congress if you're a congressman or senator um, in charge of kind of like defense, that's your portfolio basically, or you're a committee member. Um, sorry, you would just be a committee member. Sorry, if you're an executive branch officer, you'd be a officer um what's your reaction going to be that's going to be so embarrassing that it took a private or private kind of like organization to find that information out that you are perhaps kind of um your skies are being penetrated on a regular regular basis by craft which outmatch your current capability that's like that's so embarrassing you know if i'm marco ruby i'm going to be fuming i'm going to be absolutely furious because it makes them it makes them look incompetent. Mm. Um, so you can't have that situation. You can't have that situation at all. Um, and then on the other hand, as well, you've got the um, the IG as well. So they're pressurizing people who don't want this out. So obviously that makes it unsustainable, in my opinion. And then you've got Russia and China. So Russia and China, and let, let, you know, let's talk about Russia and China. So you you had yourself in two thousand eighteen. Um, a series, what well, two two big events? One in China, one in Moscow, Russia. Um, dedicated apparently to getting this topic heard and debated and investigated at the United Nations. And as we know, in China, nothing happens unless the Communist Party is on board. Mm. China has the largest UFO organization in the world. It has over a million members. To be a part of this group, you like need a PhD, you need to have certain qualifications. So, I mean, this is a really, really big deal. Um, and it spoke to me that at these two events, you had astronauts, you had chambers of commerce, um, kind of like political representatives from local governments and stuff. And it struck me, this is a really, really big effort here that was going on. They're the ones responsible for ISA as well. They're the ones who got delegates together from different parts of the world. Um, 
and that was a really, really big deal. So what happened with that? So what happened was that after the Moscow event, more events were planned. They were going to get more advanced in terms of making a request um, to the United Nations. And then all of a sudden, nothing was heard again um, from the Chinese government. You wonder why that is. Obviously, I those delegates who were involved um, from various nations, like Gary Hesseltine, they then went on to form ISA and have now made the request to San Marino in terms of the Project Titan um, initiative. But it makes you think that, look, what was going on with China and Russia? What, why would they go to all that effort? What's happened behind the scenes? Is a secret agreement struck with the US perhaps saying, look, let's completely take this off the table. Um, we don't want any kind of like country taking the glory. Let's choose a neutral country, San Marino, for instance, to put this on the table, and then let's work collaboratively. So that's something, in my opinion, which, you know, it could have happened. Um, but that also suggests as well that if the US doesn't get exact together, perhaps China and Russia are waiting in the background to take the glory. Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different avenues that are kind of essentially forcing the DOD's hand. You know, like you say, you've got all of these other countries, adversarial countries, all these private groups like the Galileo Project. And you, like you say, the more progress they make, the less options the DOD have in terms of, you know, being able to actually keep the information that they've got uh, hidden because it's 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 coming out everywhere whether they like it or not by this point isn't it whatever the actual information is you know it's things are going to be found out and and the dod are going to have the hand forced more and more as time goes along but when we when we talk about disclosure obviously we are sort of assuming that there is something to disclose you know which i think it's fairly obvious that there definitely is something to disclose at this point but the the extent of what there actually is there known by world powers is kind of a, a different question, isn't it? It's like depending on who you ask in the UFO community, it could be anything from, you know, a few little tidbits of information. They may have got some molten metal, but that's about it. Or other people would say that they've actually got full working craft and actual extraterrestrial biological, you know, samples or even full bodies. You know, it's... um. It's a, it, it totally depends who you ask as to what extent you know they believe e information exists. What are your thoughts on that? How much do you think is actually being covered up? A lot, in my opinion. I mean, I, I, I go to two sources usually. I mean, I listen a lot to Timothy Good in terms of what he said previously. I just find that very interesting. And then the second one, perhaps most important, is Tom DeLonge. I always go back to what he said previously, like every month I'll go back to an old interview and I'll kind of like join the pieces just to see like what kind of like matches. Um, so for example, like um, just to give you an example of this, um, if you look at the, um, if you look at the initial story of Tom DeLonge, his initial proposition to the, um, because he, he, the genesis is through the U.S. Air Force and Lockheed Martin, from my understanding. That's how this all came about, through meetings. Well, firstly with Lockheed Martin, and then um, 
with McCaslan's involvement, the US Air Force as well. Um, and it, yeah, so going back to what he initially was kind of proposing was that, look, um, defense contractors and de- defense industry, they do not have a good reputation, um, just in general. So now you've got yourself a situation where all the best talent is going to Elon Musk, they're going to Jeff Bezos, they're going to Google, they're going to all these other places. So you're losing your best talent. Um, let's try and find a way around that. So that's a big problem that exists for these defense contractors at the moment. And that's a huge national security risk as well, not just for the US, just like for our country as well. Like a lot of our systems are on Lockheed Martin, US defense contractors. So that's a really, really big problem there that they've got. So that's part of the puzzle, okay? Um, and then if you go back to Lula Elizondo's interview with um, Luis Jimenez, um, their first ever interview together, there was like a certain part of that interview where they're kind of like brainstorming what they could do in terms of having an event. Obviously, Jimenez knew what he wanted to do already, but Lou kind of like had a suggestion that it could be like a festival um, about UFOs, like bands and things like that together, um, all people interested in UFOs. Plus, he stated that there would be perhaps like defense contractors present as well, and they'd have recruitment stands <laughs> to recruit like younger people. So that really stood out to me. That was kind of like okay, that kind of like ties together what Tom with what Tom Delonge said there that there is a recruitment issue that exists. Um, but but yeah, I mean, if you do believe that origin story, then it does kind of like lead you down the path that a lot of these craft are with Lockheed Martin and other defense contractors. And that's very, very complex. As Lou has said before, these defense contractors may have won contracts from the government unfairly because they've had these craft and they've studied technology and stuff like that. So that gives them an unfair advantage. So there's some legalities involved with that as well. Um, and, and that, in a way, leads me to the conclusion that it might not be a disclosure process, but a transparency process where things are discovered instead of disclosed. Oh, we've got this new craft. Oh, I wonder what this could be. Let's uh, let's go investigate it. Hey, guys from Lockheed, come over here. Like We've got this craft here. Oh, never seen that before. Let's have a look. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it could be like a situation like that. But um, but if, if you um, but if you you know believe Tom Delonge, there's a major cover up and. Um, you know, it's for for a good reason that we may, from the outside, be really, really judgmental and stuff, being like, you're hiding the truth. But then if you listen to um, Tom DeLonge, there are, like, people in fear constantly because they've got literally, like, the world on their shoulders and there's a really, really precarious situation happening behind the scenes and they're trying to get a hold of it trying to understand it they don't even understand it and there's a really really horrid situation taking place and you know they don't want to to make the public um alarmed and tom's also alluded to the movie um 13 days of kevin costner and have you ever seen that movie before i actually haven't no i'd 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 watch that because tom's stated that's kind of like one of the movies that kind of was the inspiration for him kind of like taking specific approach because he claims that he has a kind of like plan to get disclosure out and he has an idea of what's been going on behind the scenes as well and he cited that movie as a movie that kind of like 
triggered a lot of his inspiration. So that's basically about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, so at the time, you had like people like praying on mass, um, kids like really upset and stuff, and just people like panicked basically because they thought the world was going to end. Um, and then it takes you within Kennedy's office of what's going on behind the scenes and stuff like that, and then trying to get a grip of it on it. So yeah, um, so it could be for good reason, but I believe that there's crashed craft. I think that we have possession of those. If you believe the rumours, one of those crafts comes from 1933 um, in Italy, um, which was captured initially by Mussolini and then taken to the US after the war. Um, and that is what well, that went to right past an Air Force base, apparently. Um, so I think we've got captured craft. A few people have said to me as well that um, the alleged encounters between Eisenhower and beings did happen. I mean, yeah, that's interesting. I'm not going to say it's accurate or not, but something I'll consider. Um, <laughs> I'll keep in my head. Um, and then you got um, multiple accounts that they look like us as well. Bigelow saying they walk among us. Timothy Good saying, look, a lot of them look exactly like us. Even if you listen to um, the now deceased Sir Peter Horsley, um, do you know the Sir Peter Horsley story? I can't say I do, no. So um, when when the Queen um, first became Queen um, um, to, to the throne, um, obviously you've got um, Prince Philip in the picture now as a major major figure, um, and he had his own kind of like rural out house, household as well. I think they're called inquiries, or no, I think it's called inquiries. I need to check that. Sorry, I'm not very good with language. Yeah, sorry. Um, but like he had his like inquiries, basically like his um, the people that supported his household, and one of them was like a World War Two Air Force veteran called Sir Peter Horsley, um, and Prince Philip was obsessed with UFOs. Um, part of that was because of um, Mount Batten, um, and he had his own sighting in the Pacific in the war. Uh, Mount Batten did, and then Mount Batten's gardener saw something. Um, on his estate. Um, so a lot of that sparked the interest of Prince Philip as well. So knowing that Prince Philip was interested in UFOs, Peter Horsley started asking around to a few of his kind of like British Army friends and stuff. And then I think a, gen a British Army general basically went up to him one day and said, look, if you want, like, I can introduce you to an actual kind of like extraterrestrial. It's like, okay, rolls his eyes. Okay. Let's just do this. You know, Prince Philip's a friend. Let's go and meet this alien. <laughs> kind of like <laughs> half giggling, you know, at the time you can imagine. And so uh, a meeting was set up in um, Chelsea, um, just across the river from me, actually, <laughs> um, with this alien called Janus. Um, I can even give the road name as well later on, where it was, this, this place. Um, so he goes and goes over and he, he sees Janice and Janice just looks like a normal, normal person, you know, just it's like you or me, but he's much smarter than me though. Um, you know, he's very, very, he's got a suit on, he's very, very smart and stuff. And, um, yeah. So, um, he's like, okay. He probably, he probably at this point thinks he's being set up, but then it gets really weird. So he's got a bunch of questions. Like you've got a bunch of questions in your head, like as an interviewer. So he's got a bunch of big questions in his head as well. Okay, really an alien. Where do you come from? Stuff. The funny thing is, with his encounter, he's got the questions in his head, but before he actually asks the questions, Janice is already 
answered the question. He knows what he's going to ask before the question is asked. Hmm. And, and Sir Peter Horsley, I can imagine, even comes up with complex questions in, in his head. But he said that every single time this person knew what was going to be asked before he even said it. And he said the most worrying aspect is that this person he knew knew every nuclear secret that the United Kingdom had. And this guy was convinced. And he went back to Prince Philip, reported what happened. Um, and obviously you're thinking at this point, okay, this guy met an alien in Chelsea. He's obviously lost his mind. This guy is crazy, right? Uh, but no, um, far from being relegated uh, in public life, I think about 10 years later, he becomes the vice air marshal. And he is literally in control of nuclear bombers, which could end the world. Yeah. So then you're asking yourself, okay, was this guy really crazy? And he wrote about this encounter um, in his um, in his autobiography as well. So it is on the record. Isn't That's that really crazy? interesting. How, how, how do you spell his name? Peter and then uh, Horsley? Sir, Sir Peter Horsley. I can send you a link after the interview with the story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do it, yeah. And I'll I'll, uh, I'll post it on my, my Twitter if anybody's interested in uh, checking that out um, as well. But, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I mean, I'm sort of relatively new of having a real deep dive into the UFO topic. And so far, I've kind of covered a few. Crash retrievals was kind of one that I've really dug into. But the... Uh, the, these other kind of things, especially UK ones like that, I've not really had a chance to get my get my teeth into just yet. So great to hear of of that one. It sounds really interesting. Um, I was just looking into uh, Terry Lovelace quite recently as well, and uh, he he, as part of his experiences, recounted the fact that he came across quite a lot of human, you know, uh, looking uh, beings as well as as other beings uh, when he was on board a craft and that they have um treaties with you know government world governments and um and even a, a base on the, the dark side of the moon um but i'm halfway through my my deep dive into that at the moment so i'll reserve a final judgment until uh you know i, I get all the way through that <laughs> so um but yeah man i mean that's that's basically about all we've got time for so um it's kind of flown by that an hour there, but I just want to say, you know, thanks a lot for your time coming on and sharing your thoughts on all of this. And before we go, would you just like to tell the listeners where they can find you on social media and also uh, where they can find Liberation Times as well? Well, firstly, Frank, thank you so much for having me on. I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure. You, you, you know, it's great to have some UK podcasters now that can really add to the conversation, you know, in you're very, very good at interviewing. Your questions are just like, you know, so bang on, you know, and you've done your research and stuff. So thank you. It's been a pure pleasure being on your show and thank you for having me on. Um, so in terms of Liberation Times, um, it's www.liberationtimes.com, um, which is where you can find my website. We've got a Twitter account as well. Um, which I think it's just Liberation Times again. Um and um yeah i mean um i'm on twitter as well real c sharp um that's where you can find me um feel free to dm me i'm quite approachable um yeah if you want to contribute towards the um the website happy to do so uh, happy to help you formulate your ideas and kind of like edit the articles if needed as well so yeah um happy to um to add value wherever i can to the conversation and like yourself, Frank, as well, just kind of like, you know, really kind of like 
help those people who have got a voice but obviously don't have a big kind of like footprint on the UAP community because I think that a lot of people have a lot to contribute but they don't perhaps have the platform yeah well thank you and like I say it's great that you're creating that platform and I'd love to have you on again for for another chat at some point down the line if, if you're up for it absolutely yeah great stuff so yeah thank you very much cheers mate UFO Thinker Podcast.